So the verse to be read one more time today, and we'll hit on it a few times, Jeremiah 29, 11, and I invite you actually to open up your Bibles to Jeremiah 29. We'll be spending the bulk of our time in this chapter, although we will be looking at chapter 28 as well. Uh, but we are specifically going to be looking at 29, and 29.11 is a verse that so many of us love and have quoted and probably have taken comfort in. It says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. What a beautiful passage of scripture. I remember having the scripture spoken over me at multiple times in my life, and I want to get something clear here about this series. We are going to be highlighting powerful and prominent scriptures like this one. My goal is not to undermine the value that you've found in these scriptures, as I'm sure Jeremiah 29, 11 especially has probably been one that has afforded you hope at a time in your life. But what I am going to try to accomplish is instead of trying to knock down what this scripture has done for you, hopefully continue to build up what I believe God is intending out of this scripture. So in order to do that, we're going to be looking at the context of what Jeremiah 29, 11 comes from. I remember years ago when I was in high school, I became a Christian somewhere around my sophomore year, and I quickly got plugged into a church. I quickly got plugged into uh, youth activities that were going on, and we even had a Bible club at our secular school, which was a great and awesome thing to have at a school that is obviously a public secular school. I soon made friends, and I remember having kind of a a good group of friends in high school that we would kind of tag along, pray for each other, encourage each other. And I remember one conversation that I had in particular with this girl that was a part of this Christian group that we hung out with. And we were talking about, as many high school students do, of what do you want to do later on in your life, right? That's a common theme when you're in high school and college. And I remember what she told me, and it still makes me laugh to this day. And she says, well, I want to work in ministry. And I said, great. And then the next thing was, I want a Cadillac Escalade. (laughs) And I just remember scratching my head at that time because I said to myself, at least in my thoughts, I said, this two things don't usually go together. And I told her that, and, and, and I remember her response because she, she quickly turned her face into like a stern look and, and, and looked at me and said, well, God knows the desires of my heart, and Jeremiah 29 11 says that he's going to prosper me. <laughs> well, <laughs> let's talk about that. Let's talk about what does it mean for God to prosper us? What does it, the the mic doesn't like it when I say P words, so I'll try to limit it. God, uh, let's look at what it means for God to prosper us and what the hope of this verse is trying to communicate to us. Because here's the thing, I'm not saying it's bad per se to feel blessed in more ways than one, including financial blessings. 
I know many of you have worked so hard to be able to, to, to have the financial blessings that you have in your life. And for the most part, we live in a country where there's a lot of mobility, as they call it, to be able to have a life that is more affluent than most. And we have to be thankful for that, especially as Americans, and to be in the unique time in our history where there's so much mobility in that way for us to be able to, to hopefully afford ourselves a better future. I'm not saying it's always perfect, but it's definitely something to be thankful for. But when we think about prosperity and when we think about God's prosperity in our lives, what do our minds typically go to? You know, something that you might hear of is something called a prosperity gospel. And if anything, Scripture seems to be very against this kind of idea of prosperity only being defined as financial health or financial, yeah, financial wealth and then having health and just making everything in your life go up and up and up and up. And oftentimes, if you're not living in that kind of way, what the prosperity gospel teaches is that you're doing something wrong, right? Or if everything isn't perfect in your life, or if your finances aren't perfect, or if your health isn't perfect, or if your family isn't perfect, if you're not living in the right zip code, then it's because you did something wrong and you didn't allow God to give you victory in your life. See, I don't believe the scriptures teach that at all. And I think scripture defines prosperity very different. So it's so important for us to be able to get God's word correctly. I like this quote from a a gentleman named J. Ray Klingensmith. And he said this once. He said, people are starving for the word of God. And I'll put it on the screen for you. People are starving for the word of God, and they don't even know it. Abel, can you switch that text to black? I'm sorry. It's just, it looks like it might be a little hard to read. But when they hear it, believe it, and get a taste of it, it feeds their soul like nothing else can. I don't know if, is that worse or better? (laughs) Okay. Did you hear that? So people are starving for the word of God, and they oftentimes don't even know it. But finally, when they get it, it feeds their soul in a way that nothing else can. Have you ever felt like that personally before? Maybe coming to church by the time that you leave church or are at church, you feel a sense of your soul being filled. Or maybe not even just at church, maybe just daily Bible reading or spending time in community with with each other where you start to feel a sense of your soul being full. That's what I've experienced in my life, and I believe that there's a strong truth to that. But we need to be able to get God's word correct because his word is so important to us and being able to understand the context of it is so important. It's similar to if I were to write or or receive a letter, right? And let's say I receive a letter and there's no person on the letter's name. And it says something like, I love you. Well, it matters, right, if that person who wrote that letter is my wife, my sister, my mom and dad, a stranger. 
I might be creeped out, right, by one, and I might be really happy by the other. But either way, it probably means something different depending on who it comes from. See what I'm saying here? So in the same way, being able to understand God's word correctly takes the hard work of being able to understand the context of where these scriptures are being written in. Wayne Grudem, he's a a famous and prominent theologian. He wrote this. He wrote, you better get it right, speaking specifically to people like clergy, like myself. He said, you better get it right because people will believe you. And as teachers, you will have to give an account one day. What does he mean by that? What he's saying is, is that we need to get scripture right and we need to understand these things for what they are because ultimately we have influence in people's lives. And while Wayne Grudem was trying to direct this towards pastors and teachers, the truth is is that all of us could say that, right? If you're a mom or a dad, you are in some ways a teacher to your children, a teacher to your grandchildren. And ultimately, we are, are given influence over somebody's life. Maybe it's our neighbor or our children or me as a pastor over, over you guys or maybe in your workplace, if you're in a position of leadership especially. We need to get scripture right because we have an impact on people. And people will oftentimes believe us. And we need to make sure that what we're leveraging is God's word and his truth and not something else. So let's go ahead and look at Jeremiah 29.11 and get a little bit of context for what was going on in the life of Jeremiah and what these scriptures were really rooted in. So if you didn't know, Jeremiah was most likely born in 627 B.C., So that's over 600 years before Christ most likely came onto the scene. And he was born during the reign of Josiah. Josiah was an important person in Israel, if you didn't know who he was. He was specifically one of the kings of the southern kingdom of Israel. And he was kind of the last good king, if you will. You see, Israel had kind of a, a, a ping-pong history between good kings and bad kings, and there was a, it seemed in some ways that there was a lot more bad kings than there were good kings. Well, Josiah was a good king, and he became a king at a fairly young age in his life. Well, what's interesting about Josiah is that by the age of somewhere around 26 years of age, when he was in his 18th year of of reign as king over Israel, Josiah set out to be able to clean the temple. So he started making repairs over the temple. And as they were cleaning the temple and repairing the temple, something interesting happened. It says that they discovered the law of the Lord. It was most likely the book of Deuteronomy. Now, that should kind of shock you in a sense, right? Because what do we know about Israel? What we know Israel was a nation that was founded by who? By the Lord. So in many ways, year after year, who was the ultimate king over Israel? God. 
And it was a nation that was founded by God with specific rules that came from God. And to think that these people got to a place where the law was literally lost. That is amazing. Think about that. Where Josiah discovers the law for the first time in his life. In the 18th year of his reign. What does that tell you? That tells you that even though a nation can have a good start, it can oftentimes go astray. And that if we're not careful even today as people to in our own lives and especially in our family life to maintain the things that are important to us, that it can be lost within our own families, our own, our, our, our next generation. And that's exactly what happened. Somewhere along the way, people stopped valuing God's law in their life so much so that the law literally got lost. So when Josiah has presented this book and he's presented the law and he starts reading it, it causes him to literally rip his clothes because he's so disgusted because he realizes how far away his nation has gone away from the Lord. Unfortunately, even though Josiah starts to institute change across the whole entire nation of Israel, Eventually, what ends up happening is, is Josiah is killed, and it's in some ways too little too late. So what ends up happening is, is that Jerusalem ends up getting destroyed along with the temple, and the Babylonians take over Israel after three distinct invasions that come in that span a number of years, about 20 years, and finally Israel falls. And it's during this time where Israel is is held captive and brought to Babylon. This is where you hear about the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. So what's interesting here, though, is, is that Jeremiah is appointed as prophet over the land of Israel. Now, if you didn't know what a prophet typically had to do, is a prophet would typically have to preach and teach and advise kings and leaders and and in some ways predict the future of, of what the nation was going to be having to face and live. It was a daunting task, to say the least, to be able to be a prophet because you didn't always bring good news. And oftentimes you would have to bring news of correction over a people. So that was the job that Jeremiah was given. It's the job that really nobody wants to do. Have you ever worked in a place where you had the job that nobody wanted to do? I remember in college I was working as a a waiter at an Applebee's. And I remember one day... Uh, one of my managers came to me and said, well, there was an accident in the bathroom, Kevin. And I go, okay. <laughs> and you can imagine what happened next. I got handed a mop and a bucket, <laughs> and I had the job that day that nobody wanted to do. Jeremiah had the job that nobody wanted to do. And I want to read to you now 
how Jeremiah 29.11 actually looks like when you read the scriptures that surround it. So again, if you have your Bibles, read with me in Jeremiah 29. We're going to read verse 1, we're going to jump to verse 4, and we're going to read all the way through to verse 14. You don't have to read aloud with me, but I do want to tell you in this series, we're going to take more time to read larger portions of Scripture together. And my hope is, is that by doing that, we can understand the full context, okay? So that's why we're going to read more than normal, but it'll be worth it. So this is what Jeremiah 29 actually looks like. It says this. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priest. So what, what's going on? Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem, and there's exiles that are living out in Babylon. So those exiles are, are again, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and other Jews that were brought to the nation of, of Babylon, while there's this remnant that's still left in Jerusalem, including Jeremiah. So verse 4, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Hey, that's some scripture evidence that parents should have an influence, right, (laughs) over who their children pick. (laughs) Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this Place. Now read Jeremiah 29, 11. It says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile." This is no easy letter to be read. You know, we are so removed from this moment that it's easy for us to read this letter and think, oh, how nice, God's telling them to plant gardens and to have marriages and to, you know, be involved in their culture where they're called to live. But this would not have been easy at all. This would have been a total break in what they were hoping for. 
This leads me to my first point that I'd like to make today, and that is that life doesn't always go according to plan. You see, regardless of the time we find ourselves in, every single prisoner of war, every single person that is put in a position where they are brought away from their home dreams and desires their release. There is no normal person who is placed in a moment of exile or captivity that doesn't dream about being able to go home. Yet Jeremiah's message flies in the face of that. It goes against their natural desires of wanting to to be a freed people and, and kind of creates this acceptance of you need to remain exiled. And you have to be there for not just five years or ten years, but how long? Seventy years. Which means what? It means most people who are hearing this message will most likely never see their home again. It means that most likely the people that will have the opportunity to taste freedom will be the children's children. That for at least two generations worth of people, this will be their situation. Verse 7 goes one step further and encourages the people to pray for the welfare of their captors. What a stunning notion to think about, right? The word that they use there for welfare is a, is a popular Hebrew word that I'm sure some of you have heard before, but it's the word in Hebrew that, that means, or that is shalom, which translates roughly to, to well-being and prosperity and peace. So God is literally telling them, you're going to be where you are, For 70 years, and while you're there, I want you to pray for the very people that conquered you. And I want you to pray for their peace, I want you to pray for their prosperity, and I want you to pray for their well-being. Now, when I read Jeremiah 29, 11, it starts to look a little differently, right? It starts to change from, hey, let me just sprinkle Jeremiah 29.11 over my rough situation so that it gets better, to realizing that not every single situation that we find ourselves in in life is what we want for ourselves, but ultimately life doesn't always go according to the way that we plan it, right? As I mentioned in our first point today, I remember a former pastor friend of mine used to say that we're all on plan B. What did he mean by that? Well, what he meant is is that most of us make a plan for our life, and even if we are that anal retentive person that tries to set up every single thing in the way that we wanted to go, ultimately something happens, right? That changes our trajectory. And even if we try to control that change, Oftentimes, the forces around us are bigger than ourselves. 
this would have been what it would have felt like for Israel. And if there was ever a moment in your life where you struggled with the outcomes of certain situations or the situation that you find yourself in, maybe even presently, then know that you can relate to this verse. You can relate to the struggles of this people during this time. Now let me be clear about something. Israel did find themselves in this rough situation because they perpetually disobeyed the Lord. And I will say this, that even though we can find ourselves in rough situations, and maybe those situations aren't a direct result of our own mistakes, ultimately, any time we find ourselves in a negative situation, it in some ways is a product of sin. Whether it's our own sin or the sin of somebody else. This is why when you read the news or see the news, it's sometimes hard because especially when you see someone hurting or you see someone going through a situation and you know that it's not technically their doing, maybe it's because somebody foolishly got behind the wheel and they were under the influence. Or somebody decided to bring about evil in this world through violence and, and, and created a victim out of somebody who was innocent in that situation. But ultimately, whether it's because of what's happening in this world through the natural elements or through the, through the acts of people, the negative effects that we feel in life are result of sin in some sort of shape or fashion. But that doesn't mean that every single negative situation that we are in is our own doing. But at least for Israel, at this time, a part of the reason why they ended up in captivity, in exile, was because they constantly were living against God. And God decided to use this situation to bring back their attention. You know, I've been thinking about taking the church through a series in, in, in that very easy-to-understand book called Revelation. <laughs> and I was actually rereading it yesterday. I read four chapters last night just for my own personal enjoyment. And it was interesting because I was reading all the different chapters of the book of, uh, or I was reading all the, the, the first letters. If you, if you know the book of Revelation, you'll know that the first few chapters of the book address different churches. And it's like one by one, each church, it, it, God says something positive, but ultimately there's something that they're missing, right? Something that they've forgotten. And it was interesting because you read the letter to the church of Smyrna, and it's it's the only church where God only says positive things and doesn't say anything negative to them. But it's also the only church where the highest level of suffering and persecution is going on. So isn't that interesting that the church that is living the most for the Lord out of all those churches in the book of Revelation, this is just free information, but the, the church that is, that is doing the best, if you will, is the one that is under the most persecution in, 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 in going through the roughest moments in life. So don't 
undermine how God can use tragedy in difficult situations to bring about good. So Jeremiah writes this letter to them that's to be read to all the people. And what I think is interesting here is it just it shows in very much a way how we can oftentimes fail to hear God correctly. You see, what you might not have known is that in the previous chapter from chapter 29 to 28, there was another prophet that was trying to speak to the people in exile. And let me read to you what this prophet says, and you can read for it yourself. It's Jeremiah 28, 24, or sorry, 28, 2 through 4, and we'll put it on the screen. And this comes from the prophet Hananiah. Let's read what the prophet, the prophet Hananiah says. Break the yoke of the king of Babylon. What does that mean? It means basically. The Babylonians are your rulers. It's time to fight back and break that rulership over your life. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, removed from here and took to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jehoiachin and Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the other exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon." Does that sound, if, I, if you didn't hear me read Jeremiah's message in the following chapter, and I just read that alone, does that sound like a prophet talking? I think so. It sounds very prophet-like, and it sounds very powerful-like. But does this go against what Jeremiah was saying? Yeah, absolutely. Jeremiah is saying, hey, you need to stay put. You need to pray for your captors. You need to get settled. And you're going to be there for 70 years. And then this other prophet saying, you need to break your captors. You need to rebel. You need to fight back. And in two years, everything that you lost will be restored to you. That's two different messages. Both saying that they're coming from who? From God. So what does that tell you? that tells you that there are people out there who can even be among the people of God who are false prophets, who are wrongly hearing from God, but yet trying to bring a message. And I think it also tells us that we need to be very, very careful with who we allow to speak into our lives, right? I'm sure you probably know of people in your own life. Maybe it's even you. Where you know that the person that they're listening to is not good for them. Maybe they're a preacher. Maybe they're somebody else. You know, the popular one we hear today, right, is conspiracy theorists. But maybe there's somebody that you know, or maybe yourself... And you need to think about 
the kinds of people that you are allowing or other people that are allowing in their life. This is why in the beginning I I quoted that Wayne Grudem quote. Because we need to be careful with how we teach and what we say. Hananiah, in this instance, was a false prophet. And in this day and age, a false prophet like this deserved, if anything, to be stoned. And Jeremiah, in fact, told them, said, he said this to them, the, the rule of a prophet is, is if it doesn't come to pass, if, if someone gives a prophetic word and it doesn't come to pass, which means if it doesn't come true, then that person should be called a false prophet. So, for instance, if I said, hey, Jesus is coming back tomorrow, and then tomorrow comes and goes, what does that make me? That makes me a false prophet. Well, if you didn't know, there's a lot of people out there who have said those kinds of things. Some of them are the founders of religions. Look no further to uh, the Jehovah Witnesses, for, for example. The Seven-Day Adventists, for example, who its founders made multiple claims about Jesus is coming back. And then what ends up happening? They say, oh, he came back spiritually. Oh, he, he came back, but it was just, you know, for, and then they try to fix it. We need to be careful with what we listen to. And look, I'm not trying to be the kind of guy that's really mean and kicking other people while they're down. But I'm, I am trying to make a point here. That there are people that make false prophetic claims. And those claims should be taken very seriously, especially if they're, they're, they're made wrong. You know, many of you know that I, I, I come from a charismatic um, background, which is usually made evident by, by the way I jump around here on the stage. <laughs> but it's more than just being excited. It's believing that the Holy Spirit is living, active, and moving today. It's more than just having charisma Well, one of the things that oftentimes comes with that perspective is believing that God can still speak today. And there has been unique moments in my life where I believe I've heard from the Lord, or maybe somebody believes that they've heard from the Lord and they offer me what we would call a prophetic word. And oftentimes, if I get a word from somebody, I I, I put it on a shelf and what I, what I mean by that is I take that word and I put it on a shelf and I pray about it and I think about it and I don't let my whole life be formed around that word because if that word is wrong or if that word goes against scripture, then what's going to happen? It's going to have a bad effect in my life. So I put it on a shelf and if it comes true and if it comes to pass or if the Lord leads me to think about that again, then I take the time to wrestle with it. But I don't just accept every single thing that somebody has to say to me. But out of Jeremiah and Hananiah, who's the one do you think people want to listen to? Which one of the two prophecies do you think people want to be true? Obviously the one with better news. But that isn't always our situation. So we need to be careful And I know that this is a hard pill to swallow, but if we can accept it, then we won't cling on to the falsehood that that just because we are Christians and our lives will be blessed, 
That we won't hang on to the falsehood that if things aren't working out materialistically or financially or or health-wise, that somehow God is against us. Because oftentimes that's immediately where our mind goes. Or if these things aren't working out, then God is against us. You know, especially if you know a young person or if you are a young person, life will have trouble. You will have days where you call things into question. And it's important that while you do this, you do not point the finger at God. Because it's so easy to do that and just say, Lord, I thought you wanted to prosper me. I thought you were here to, to make my life better. And to really understand what prosperity and what it means for things to, to look better actually looks like. You see, life might not always go according to plan. But the second point that I have for you today is that life always goes according to God's plan. Do you hear that? Thank you. So life might not always go according to plan, but life does go according to God's plan. Now, I need, to, I need to be careful with that. I need to nuance that a little bit. Because I think it would be fair for you to say, okay, well, what about Adam and Eve? <laughs> that wasn't God's plan, and it didn't go to God's plan, right? Well, here, there's this thing called free will, <laughs> Right? where we have the, the, the ability to either choose what the Lord is calling us to or to choose our own way. But ultimately, even though we might resist and fight against what God desires for us, ultimately God is still the one that allows things to happen, that is still orchestrating this world. And ultimately, if we are yielded and surrendered to God, then we can trust that whatever situation that we find ourselves in, even if we feel like that situation is a result of our own bad doing, that he's still in control. And that ultimately he is in control of what happens the moment we pass from this life to the next. Amen? There is nothing in this world that can pluck us from the Father's hand. We sang those words just moments ago. There is nothing that can ultimately resist the coming age that, that, that will come when Christ comes back and he puts an end to all of this. That is going to happen. And we can take hope in that. So even though life might not always go according to plan, life does go according to God's plan. Israel would see a future. It just wasn't going to be the one that they had imagined. And in the same way, you might be able to see a future and it might not be the one that you imagined for yourself. But know this, that if you yield it to God, it's the exact future that you need it. For whatever the reason, whether it's for your benefit or the benefit of some, somebody else. And look, I don't say that lightly because I understand that sometimes that means living through a difficult situation. But we need to trust 
the Lord and ask ourselves as well this important question. To what end am I living for? To what end am I living for? Are you living for the desires of your own heart in a way that is just what you want out of life? Look, I'm not saying it's wrong to have desires. In fact, I think our desires should become God's desires. But ultimately, the ends in which we live for need to be rooted in what we believe God is calling us to. My last point for you today, and we're going to end with this, is that God's plans are to bless us. And through Christ, we have been given a hope and a future. See, what Israel wanted, what Israel would have defined as prosperity and blessing, would have just been to be the top dog, to be able to break that that yoke of bondage over their life, to be able to take back everything that was stolen from them and more, to become the strongest nation out of all other nations, to be able to rule and build kingdoms and, and be the top dog out there. But God wanted to prosper them in a different way. Do you think God wants to prosper you in a different way too? I like this quote from C.S. Lewis. It comes from the book Mere Christianity, which if you've never read, I think it's worth it. This book, Mere Christianity, by the way, was was, uh, technically it was a radio broadcast that the BBC gave during World War II as C.S. Lewis was asked to, in some ways, encourage the people and talk about faith. I don't think the BBC would do that anymore, but... C.S. Lewis wrote these words in Mere Christianity. He says, Imagine yourself living, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. Right? We all have something that needs to be fixed in our own house. But presently, he starts knocking down the house about in a way that hurts. He does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. I like that. Because what, what is Lewis trying to communicate there? is that we all recognize that there is a sense of brokenness and a sense of repair in our lives that we need. But God wants to move beyond that. He doesn't want to just fix the things in our lives that we know are of issue. He wants to build in us something beautiful. And I think this is the prosperity that we can cling to. This is the prosperity that the Lord is speaking of. The prosperity of being able to become something greater than what we were through him. 
to be the kind of person that can face sin and say no, face temptation and say no, be in the midst of a troubled situation and yet still cling to the Lord, still focus on him, that in, regardless of any situation that we are in, we can cling to our God and have joy. That we can be the kind of people that in a dark place still remain as a shining light. That was what God was calling Israel to be in that time. And he was trying to help them realize that just moaning around and being troubled and being people of destruction during this captivity was going to afford them nothing. But realizing that you need to make the best of the situation you're in and not let the outside world influence what I can do in the heart and the peace that you can have. That is what God was calling him to. That was, uh, pardon me, that is what God was calling Israel to. And I believe that message is still true today. It might look a little bit different, but God does have plans to prosper you. So let's read that verse one more time, and if you can put it on the screen again for us. Abel, 20, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. God has plans for marriages to be restored. God has plans for people to find healing both emotionally and physically at times. God has plans for you to know that you are loved by him. God has plans for you to come and know him as a personal savior. And ultimately, God has plans for us to be with him forever, that death has lost its sting, and that through the blood of the lamb, we get to enter into a new eternity, one filled with the goodness of God. Amen? This is the prosperity This is the hope. This is the future that I believe God wants us to be able to receive. There might be a Cadillac Escalade involved, I don't know. (laughs) But even if there isn't, what I just listed to you there far exceeds any material thing we could ever have, amen? Let's pray.